welcome to the Pitbull Patty Show. I'm your host, Patty Stuckler. We're keeping it real here with straight talk and sharing true stories that will inspire you to change your life. Are you ready for this? Because here we go. At just 38 years old, my guest today, Dr. Robert Zembrowski, was told he had a five-inch tumor in his chest. This led to chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. It also led him on a quest to heal himself. He's a physician specializing in functional medicine, a board-certified chiropractic neurologist. He's a clinical nutritionist and now the author of Rebuild, offering five proven steps to move from diagnosis to recovery. And he's going to share his incredible story. Welcome, Dr. Z. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the, your story is um, very unusual. First off, I think for me, uh, the fact that you're a physician is really interesting to go through what a lot of physicians probably can't imagine when they're dealing with patients that have had uh, cancer like yours. You know, I think people think just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that you or means that you're immune to some disease or dysfunction, which is not the case. And again, just like me and, and a million other people, countless other people, I stopped taking care of myself. I had like count. I mean, uh, an incredible avalanche of stress that happened to me previous to my diagnosis. And in fact, that stressful situations and multiple stressful situations created a really crappy kind of lifestyle for me for a while. And when the smoke cleared, 18 months after the smoke cleared, um, I was looking at a five inch tumor in my chest. So I started to develop night sweats. I was losing weight. And obviously I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know the seriousness, uh, the serious nature of, of what I was dealing with until I had an x-ray. And a friend who was a radiologist came in and said, hey, let's take an x-ray. And uh, we're both looking at this x-ray saying, or as he said to me twice, you have a five inch tumor in your chest, which really was alarming to me. And I think what's important for people to understand is nobody's impervious to developing a disease like cancer or, or any of the other major chronic life-threatening diseases whether you're a physician or not, like the reality is, in my understanding, is disease is self-inflicted. And it's a case in point, as, as even we spoke last week about stress, it's, stress is a big player in disease. It, it's not um, something that people should take lightly. It's not something that people should take, you know, talk about in coffee shop. It's a reality. And stress, emotional stress, causes people to stop taking care of themselves and they wonder why after some major stressful event, they then get a diagnosis. Hmm. Never really thought about it that way. So you're <clears throat> kind of feel like besides uh, nutrition and, you know, whether you smoke or drink too much or whatever you're doing to your body, stress plays a key role in, in sometimes uh, developing cancer and things like that. Is, is that what you mean? Absolutely. I mean, the stress reaction itself, as I've written in the book, Rebuild, it's we have to change our perception of our stressors, right? If we don't change the perception of the stress, it will cause our emotional part of our brain, our limbic system, to cause the body to release destructive hormones like adrenaline, norepinephrine, cortisol, which then just wreaks havoc in the body. And one of the, the, the most dangerous things that it does or those hormones do is it suppresses the immune system. And so, yes, stress is one of those five things, as, as I've outlined, that needs to be taken care of, handled, resolved, change of perception of it. Stress is a killer. And the, the research shows that it is. 
So when people say stress kills, but you know, are we really talking about what it does? And so to answer your question, absolutely stress is a major uh, factor in the creation of disease. And if you don't resolve it, it's gonna slow down your recovery or prevent recovery from whatever the chronic health issue is. So it is a reality. So it's interesting because I think most people think of kind of poo-poo stress, like, yeah, I'm stressed out or whatever, but maybe don't realize uh, how important that is. But I've got to ask you, when you got that diagnosis and you were told you have a five-inch tumor in your chest, I mean, what what goes through your mind? Were you thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to die? All those thoughts? You know, it's funny because as I think about it now that it was 10 years ago and uh, I'm still in excellent health, I think the first thing that I thought was amazement. I'm looking at this and this is my body saying, I, I mean, I have a five inch tumor in my chest. I'm a doctor, I diagnose people, I, I help people resolve their chronic health issues. And they'd actually know I'm staring at a life-threatening death sentence. And so for me, it was amazement to see it. Two, it was insanely frustrating. And the frustration then turned immediately to anger. And all I can think about in my mind was, I created this. So when we say, and the research shows that disease is self-inflicted, it really is. And I guess for me, the frustration, the amazement turned in frustration that then turned into anger. And for me, anger is a motivator. So looking at it, I never ever thought that I would die. I wouldn't. In my gut, I knew that I would rebuild myself. I would come out, I would do something with this information that I'm gonna learn from this, whether it's suffering or not, um, or suffering through it or not, I knew that I would take it uh, to a different level for myself, my health to a different level, and then teach people with it. So I, I guess to answer you in a long roundabout way, I think it was, uh, I, I was angry, because I realized that the self-destructive behaviors that I was putting myself through or that I had adopted or my rituals because of my stressful events, a drug addict stealing from me. She was a heroin addict, a relationship that fell apart. I put myself into a big home with big debt. Money was floating away. We were, it was the busiest time in my practice. And it just all at once, it just like an avalanche hit me. And so I stopped taking care of myself like a lot of people do when they're under stress. And so I wasn't I was eating crappy food. I was drinking alcohol to sedate myself to sleep. And none of that worked. Nothing I could do to, would would resolve my emotional state. And so the frustration became anger. And then that was it. It became an absolute motivator for me. Wow. But I never questioned that I would die for some reason in my gut. I was like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I know it. I feel it. You mm -hmm. know. It seems like uh, probably the average person doesn't quite think that way. I think the average person probably thinks, why God? <laughs> why did this happen to me? I mean, exactly. I, it, it, it seems like that's what most people say. They have anger, but it's not at themselves. It's it's at God. Why is this happening? My, I'm only 38 years old or whatever age somebody is. Um, that seems a, a, unusual, but it sounds like you really took accountability. And that probably is why it helped you be so uh, forceful in your recovery. So <clears throat> great point. And I, I think a lot of people, well, for me, if, if I know I was responsible for playing a role in this, I'd be responsible in my recovery. So number one, it's like I created it perhaps and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself out of this. And when people tell me all the time, it's like, well, I have heart disease, cancer, there's neurodegenerative diseases in the family. It's genetic. And I sit there and I say, well, 
you have genes that may put you at risk, but they don't cause disease until you push them to do so. And so people will come in angry with heart disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases, their hair is falling out, hormonal problems, digestive problems, eczema. And they're like, why did this? How could this happen to me? I, I didn't have it before. And, you know, why would I be punished as if a higher power God is punishing you or didn't protect you? And I think people just can't face the responsibility that they, they played a role in this. You know, for me, I wasn't blaming anybody. I, I didn't blame anybody for anything except myself, that I should have taken better care of myself. I should have listened to my gut and responded to the stressors without bottling it in. That was my typical MO as a kid. So I held my emotions in without speaking my mind. And again, it just set the stage for disease. So people listening, you can't blame something, someone else. You need to be looking at yourself. And I think it's you have to look at the specific habits and rituals that you go through daily that may push, put you into the place of disease. And again, as we get ready to do a TED talk, genes aren't your fate. So your genetics don't create disease unless you push them to do so. And so again, outlined in my book, Rebuild, it's the five steps, it's the five things that the data really, the data really shows pushes us to disease. Whether you think you're healthy or not, it's, there's nobody to blame but perhaps you. I think you ought to have called the book the the Million Dollar Man. Remember that show, Steve Austin? I don't know if you remember. That. Do you remember that? The uh, oh my god, the Six Million Dollar Man. Six it million was the dollars. Best. <laughs> That's what you know. Like you just totally. It sounds like you really uh, took on this uh, accountability and channeled your anger and just so so kind of walk us through what were the initial steps you took once you said, hey you know what, I effed up, I really caused this <laughs> to happen in my life, uh, not to joke about it, but you know, when you thought that, what were the first things you started to do? So, yes, in my mind, I said I effed up. And so the first thing that I did was I, I made a decision. For me, if anybody diagnosed with a, a major health issue, I made a choice. I made a decision to say, I'm going to go through chemo. I'm going to do what I need to do to get me through the crisis, right? So it was getting me through the crisis. So first I made a decision. And then I was crazy into research. I mean, I, I don't think I took my eye off the computer, read journals, you name it. I was in the research pretty deep. And I wanted to create a plan to get me through the devastating chemotherapy. Again, if it's a cancer diagnosis, get me through the chemotherapy. But I also wanted to still keep my life, still have a life, and then come out stronger maybe in the end. So for me, I, I dove into the research. I started putting the puzzle pieces together for myself. I wanted to know why I got the disease. What can I do to make the chemo more effective, reduce toxicity? And so I created a plan. And so I sailed through it essentially, and the the uh, the oncologists and the, the people that I was on my team, they actually called me a freak because they couldn't understand why I was doing so well with what they call the strongest stuff. So the next thing I did was I took the research when I got done with my cancer care, I pushed the surgeon to, to cut open my chest, remove the tumor, and then again, as soon as I woke up from the surgery, all I could think about was rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. So it really became my calling personally and for others. But then I put the information, the research into a protocol for myself. And what I was seeing patients at the time, um, Patty, they kept saying to me, what are you doing? I don't understand why you, you look so good. Your weight came back, your color is better, your energy is better than mine. All of those things. 
So I started to apply these principles to, to my patients. And so people with autoimmune diseases, their immune system is regulated. People with leaky gut improved. People going through cancer did a lot better. People that had inflammatory heart issues or coronary artery disease, the inflammation dropped. So I said, wow, this is amazing. If, we, if I, it worked for me, it, it would work for others. And it did. And so the next thing people kept saying to me was write a book, write a book, write a book, put it in. So I never really started out thinking that I would write a book, a, a roadmap for, for people to, uh, to restore the health. But it's kind of how it went. So I did some research. I applied it to myself. I did really well. It worked well for my patients. And the next, you know, I have a book in my hands. So I'm pretty thankful for that. So absolutely. So when you talk about like the five steps, can you kind of walk us through, um, you know, those five steps? I know it's a lot, but just kind of break it down a little bit, kind of one step at a time. So through the collective research and what I found in myself and other patients, I really, I, I, I struggled with what would I put together as far as a roadmap, a plan? What, what does the prevailing research really say about the production of disease, how to recover from it, how to make medications more effective, how to reduce your suffering and so forth and come out better than you were before? And so it just kept coming up over and over and over again, five things, whether it was heart disease, Patty, whether it was, uh, you know, cancer, it doesn't matter. It just kept coming up as five things. And the five things that I created as a, uh, a roadmap, a plan for people was five what I call reaction steps. So reactions. And so the five reaction steps, the biggest one was what I call eat for your genes. And people need to understand that eating is not just about calories, but eating food is actually information that modifies gene function, our genetics. It modifies your genetic blueprint. So if you eat crappy food, you, you push genes to create disease. If you eat healthful food, nutrient-dense food, then you activate genes that, that create health. So the first thing that I had outlined uh, was really teaching people how to create a food plan for themselves, how to create a food plan unique to their, their person, their, their health issues, their conditions. And so the first step was what I call eat for your genes. And so I teach you step by step, or I teach people step by step, how to create a food plan unique to themselves. So that was the first step. Mm -hmm. The second step was exercise, right? Everybody knows you have to exercise. Well, at least I think most people know that need to exercise. And so I said, okay, what kind of exercise is the best? What's, what can I create for someone to make it less time consuming and more effective? I mean, who the hell wants to be in a gym for an hour and a half, two hours, honestly? I mean, unless you like being there <laughs> and you me. socialize. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I said, okay, the research kept pointing to explosive type of movement, high intensity interval training. Hmm. And so I said, OK, let's dig out the research and, and apply the re or see what the research has to say on a million different conditions. And when I say exercise with intensity, it's not that you have to be an intense person, but you do the exercising, the high intensity interval training with periods of intensity like a sprinter. So I've outlined a unique way to create this plan or protocol for people in the book to, to uh, in, incorporate high intensity interval training into their lives. And it's a fraction of the time. I mean, I'm at the gym. My friends make fun of me like your car's still running, isn't it, when I get there? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, why are you guys spending an hour here? I go in for 30, 40 minutes. I go intense and I leave. And, and the magic happens not only during that period of time, but it's happening after. 
So it's not that you have to do cardio for an hour and a half. I don't know who makes that up, again, unless you're addicted to exercise, which may not be healthful either. But the data says exercising with intensity is the best thing to, to recover or rebuild from something. Which is really interesting because I know myself a few years ago, I ran a half a marathon. And when I was training for it, I, um, you know, I would run, obviously, uh, for a long time. And I would run on the treadmill basically the same speed all the time and and I'm not a fast runner at all but um but what I've changed over time was I stopped doing that first off I don't really like to run it's not enjoyable <laughs> I don't either it's I not enjoyable either. to me I do it because I I I feel like I'm should and it's I want to be healthy and blah 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 so that's why I do it but um but it's not something I truly enjoy and I can't say unfortunately that I've ever had the you know how the runner's high the the release of endorphins I've never experienced that even you know as much running as I have done at different periods of my life but now what I do is short like you're describing a kind of short like 10 minute runs uh where i will change the speed i'll start off slow then i'll go exactly. fast then i'll break it down then i break it back up and do that interval uh training and i only do it for like 10 minutes and, and i'm like sweating like crazy uh but it's short yeah i hate running also um i don't mind a quick sprint but just like you're saying if it's just short periods just do something where you can actually move with intensity and then have a, a little break in between and do it again you don't have to do it a lot that's what's amazing the data shows that less but more intensity with periods of break so it's pretty remarkable what can happen when when you do that obviously you're in great shape so you 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 know wrecking your knees and ankles from running you, you can prevent that just by <laughs> by by shortening the, the the duration and just do a little more intensity with it so that's that's pretty cool and the third thing is, as I say, hit the brakes on the stress response. This, I teach people, or at least I try to teach people, when you're under stress, change the perception of the stressor. If you can change the way you think about it, think about it, you minimize the reaction that you get in the body. And so people that are very stressed, they don't, a lot of people, including myself in the past, don't have an ability to change their perception of really what what's important and what's not now i get it people go through a divorce there's financial issues people have health issues people have car and money i understand all of that but if you can change your perception of what the stressor is you can reduce the stress response in the body and if you reduce the stress response you reduce those major destructive hormones and it sets the stage for healing and not or rebuilding and not creating disease and so there's five, six, seven things that we teach people as far as breath work, meditation, you know, what kind of foods to eat when you're under stress to minimize the response. Hmm. So that's a reality, too. Again, as we said at the beginning, stress is a killer. We just try to teach people how to control the, the system. You can't stop a stress response in the body. If you go out in the cold, you shiver. It's a stress response. If you're, if you're out in the heat, you sweat. That's a stress response. If you fight an infection, you shiver, you got chills, you have, uh, uh, you, you end up sweating and burning because that's the stress response. So you can't, you can minimize it to, to make it less destructive. And, and uh, hopefully we, we did a good job with teaching people how to do that. And the fourth one is reboot your internal clock. And really what it means is you need to get a good night's sleep or you're gonna kill yourself. So the data shows that sleep is a momentary coma six, seven, eight hours where the body just goes into hibernation mode like your, your laptop would. 
and it starts to repair itself. It's the most fascinating thing ever. And all you have to do is shut your eyes. So <laughs> you can read. It, it is easy. <laughs> well, for a lot of people, it's easy, but a lot of people have a problem. People postmenopausal women have low progesterone. They can't sleep. People who are stressed out that work out late at night or, or, or just have high cortisol, they can't sleep. People that hyperthyroid can't sleep. So there's physical reasons why it happens, but the reality is try to get those things fixed. Hopefully we teach people how to get those, those issues resolved in the book. But uh, sleep is a real deal thing. And the data shows that if you lose sleep just two hours, say you normally sleep eight hours, which is really what the data shows, Patty, that if you lose just two hours of sleep, you increase inflammation in the body, which is a reaction of the immune system that then creates an inflammatory response and starts to break down your body to create health issues. So sleep is really a big deal. And what does the data show? Everybody says, well, how much sleep do I need? Seven to eight. Strive for it. Seven to eight. What you know, about people that you hear about people um, that sleep, you know, so, uh, you know, four hours a night and they seem to function, be high functioning. Are there people that just um, really don't need as much or is it, is that, what do you think about that? Yeah, good question and good point. But I'm going to say no way to that if, if somebody's saying, hey, I, I, I sleep four hours and I'm just fine. Yeah, but what's keeping you fine is cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which is causing a problem with your blood sugar and suppressing your immune system. So you may feel fine on four to five hours of sleep, but the reality is it's not a helpful situation. You know, it's funny, years ago, I, 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 I would say sleeping was a waste of time, right? And if you, the less sleep, the more productive you can become. So I had this cool badge of honor, like I can get to the office and work 10 hours and work on the computer late. I'm, I was being a fool. I, I was being ignorant. The, the, the data shows, and it's, it's been proven that if you lose just two hours of sleep based on a regular sleep pattern of seven to eight, you set the stage for disease. So... You, nobody should have a badge of honor saying that I don't need any sleep. No well, way. That that is a um, that's a common thing that I, I. It's almost like a contest that people have where they'll say, "Oh, you know, I get up at you know uh, five in the morning." And then the next person says, "Oh, well, I get up at four in the morning." And the next I get up at you know three fifteen every morning. You know, it's like, "Oh, okay." And then or they stay up till whatever. But it's usually it's almost like this kind of funny competitive thing that people have, almost like. I work harder than you do because I get up so, <laughs> so darn early. <laughs> Except, yeah. wow, thanks for competing with me on who's got the most sleep loss. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, how many steps did you take today? Yeah. Uh, what? I, I don't know. But, but use sleep as a, as a way to – sleep is natural chemotherapy. Sleep is a natural immune-enhancing activity. Sleep helps muscles rebuild after a workout. Sleep rebuilds your hormones. So – all you have to do is close your eyes and shut off all the blue lights a couple hours before you go to bed and you'll get a good night's sleep. Again, if you're not, if for those hearing, watching, listening, if, if, if even you, Patty, if you're not getting a good night's sleep, you need to find out why. Maybe it's high cortisol. Maybe there's a thyroid problem. Maybe um, you have low progesterone, which is a big deal for a lot of people. Low progesterone will make you not sleep. And so, again, even just the body is a network of orchestrated systems. And if one system doesn't work, it affects the others. So if you don't sleep, why aren't you sleeping? And if you're low progesterone, why do you have low progesterone or high cortisol? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so we try to teach you how to rebuild what I call the internal terrain of the body. So all systems go, all systems work where you're not just plugging away at one thing. Like pharmaceuticals are 
strong targeted, single targeted compounds for a single action. The body doesn't work that way. You're not going to cure yourself with one single supplement, one food source, one exercise plan, one pharmaceutical. It all has to be done all at once. Which brings up the last thing, it's reducing contamination. And everybody's aware of, I think everybody's aware of BPAs and phthalates and, and heavy metal and methylmercury from fish. That creates a world of issues in our body. And so we give you the guidelines. I teach you what are the most toxic compounds out there that we're exposed to and what does it do to the body? So a lot of toxins, believe it or not, act like hormones. So BPAs, phthalates, they act like estrogen. And again, men and women, we don't want a high estrogen in our bodies for different reasons. Um, some of the plastics, some of the plasticizers, some of the methylmercury is really destructive. People that have thyroid problems, I one of the functional tests that we do is I look at methylmercury toxicities in their system and it always shows up. So it's pretty remarkable as we dig through this and uncover why people develop their health issues. You have to take a functional, as we say, a functional medical approach, which is looking at all the whys and not just treating the what's. And the fifth thing that people need to do while doing that, as outlined in the book, is to reduce your contamination. And so, again, I just teach people what, what the big toxins are and how to detox from them. And that doesn't mean you have to go through juicing and all these detox products. You don't need to do that. Mother Nature has created all the food, all the nutrients. You just have to eat them every day. Yeah. And unfortunately, based on what we do to ourselves, we're not. Well, my uh, I've talked about my stepmother before on my podcast, but she's 80 years old and she hikes and she bikes and goes on I like really long bikes. I like you know, marathon biking type thing. And then um, she goes on whitewater rafting and she golfs every day. She's in phenomenal shape. And that's that's how I want to be. I want to. I, I don't want to. You know, sit around and you know baking cookies. I don't. You know, I just. I really want to live with that kind of you know vigor. So I really love how you've you're really talking about taking accountability, you know, for your for your own life and not um, not leaving it up to someone else or or a doctor. Um, oh. even, even though you're a doctor yourself, I I'm, I'm hearing that you're saying hey. Regardless of what, if a doctor tells you you have cancer or a doctor tells you this, that, and the other, I'm hearing you, you're, you're saying, hey, you've got to take ownership of it yourself and do the right things and, you know, you can rebuild regardless. 100%. I think one of the biggest things, again, as I mentioned, we're, we're setting up a TED Talk. It's you, one number one, genes aren't your fate. You dictate what happens to your, um, your, your health outcome. And if, if people realize that they have power and control, think about it. Health is abstract. You don't realize, people don't realize that they're losing their health or people don't realize health is so important until they lose it, right? But health is power. And if, if people can learn or if we teach people how to yield and wield that power inside themselves to create health for and longevity and healthy aging and so forth. And I think a big component of the message in the book and and what we're going to be doing in the future as far as marketing is people need to be their own advocates if i just listened to my doctors i wouldn't be here you would not you and i would not be enjoying this conversation if i just listened to what they're saying about hey do a mini stem cell transplant forget surgery if i didn't intervene or be my own advocate i wouldn't be here mm -hmm. so 
the questions we put in there, we put in a ton of medical tests in there, blood work if you have cancer, heart disease, autoimmune, obesity, diabetes. Bring these tests to your doctors and ask them to perform the tests. So you become more empowered. You understand what they are. You become more of an advocate for yourself. Who wants to just, what, not every doctor with a lab coat and a stethoscope is the, is the Oz behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, no, we're not the almighty Oz. None of us are. But we collaborate with our patients. We want people to be their own advocates. I love when a patient comes into me super educated and says, hey, what about this, this, and this? I'd like to have these things done. And then we discuss it. It's phenomenal. You, you become an expert with your own health because you're forced to. So coming back to your point, I think you have to be an advocate for yourself. Otherwise, you're, you, you increase the risk of damage or poor outcome or poor treatment. I mean, med medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the country right now. Yeah. You yeah. must be your own advocate. I think, you know, you are, no one knows your body better than you do. So, um, you know, I think you're absolutely right that you got to listen to your doctor on one hand, but you also have to realize that you're your own best advocate and, you know, uh, do the things that you need to do. What, what would you say, um, my brother and my husband both smoke cigarettes and I have tried for a very long time, uh, to get them to quit smoking. My husband quit smoking for like 30 years and then started back up like a dummy at 50 years old. And I mean, who does that? I mean, that's just so dumb. Somebody that's addicted to it uh, or, or get some kind of stress relief response from it, right? Yeah. So. Gosh, it, I mean, it just drives me nuts. I mean, now he's, you know, 56. So it's like, what are you doing? And my brother, God love him, has been smoking since he was a teenager. And he's the same age as, as, as my husband. And it's like the two of them are two peas in a pod, you know, with their cigarettes. And it's like, no matter what I say, and I try not to say a lot, because no one wants to hear somebody harangue and you know yeah. it doesn't it doesn't do any good anyway they don't listen so is there a way do you have any way to try to get somebody who smokes to stop smoking to see for them to see what damage it's doing inside them uh for them to see the light and them to feel alarmed and want to do something to quit so i that's a i don't know if there's a direct answer to that however people won't change until they have three types of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And as Anthony Robbins has said in his videos, which are pretty impactful, people, until you actually, a person emotionally hits the wall or physically something about them, they feel that they need to change, they won't change. And so when we see people that smoke or um, obese diabetics, people that are overweight and diabetic here with you know, cellulitis and their skin is purple and they're scratching their skin off because of autoimmune problems. It's amazing. Even with physical pain, these individuals have some emotional thing that keeps them stuck into these patterns of behavior. So proving to them and some people, when they see their blood work, they see hormone profiling, they see an x-ray of themselves. Some people, when they see a physical proof, they make a change. And, and just like we said before, Patty, like, um, stress is, I mean, um, um, health is abstract. They don't feel threatened at all because maybe they don't have symptoms. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not coughing up a lung. Maybe they're not, you know, haven't been diagnosed with a, a carcinoma or some kind of cancer in their chest. Maybe they don't, they don't know they have cardiovascular disease or coronary artery disease, which is one of the biggest problems associated with smokers because the, the chemicals destroy the lining of the artery causing coronary artery disease. They're not threatened yet. So 
my suggestion to to someone like that is perhaps show them objectives. You know, if you can show them something faulty in their bodies, they may be likely to change. I mean, you know them well. Mm-hmm. What is their motivating thing? What what will motivate them? Well, I I've I've tried everything. I mean, with my brother, he does cough, but I always say, like with my husband, I always say, think about. Well, first off, I always say, look, I'm not gonna, you know, take care of you when you when you get cancer. Exactly. I mean, I always say that. I, I mean, I don't know if I would or I wouldn't, but to be honest with you, I do threaten them with that and say, look, I'm not anybody's nursemaid. I'm not gonna do that. I will put you in a home. I will work my butt off to pay for that home, but I'm I'm not gonna care for you. You're gonna be, you know, in a room somewhere because I and that doesn't motivate them. And then I'll say. Well, like, you know, we have two beautiful grandbabies, and I'll say, think about our grandbabies, thinking about, you know, Reese and Cece. You know, don't you want to be here? No, nothing seems to, I know he wants to quit. I know that. But he just has not been able to be disciplined enough to do it. And and I've suggested the patch. It's just, uh, you know, like that's a good way to quit. I've known other people who have quit, you know, using the patch. So is there a test that I could say, please get this test done and see what it, the results show so that if there is some damage that's starting, that maybe he could have a wake-up call? Yeah, and I think um, if you go through the book and you go through, I think it's chapter eight, testing the disease terrain, there's the cardiovascular profile, which is all inflammatory markers. I'd run that first. And I'm not saying hopefully something shows up, but if something does, then he needs to know that he's slowly killing himself with it. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, again, people won't change until they have pain. The the pain of addiction, if he quits, right, if someone quits, is far greater than the the benefit he will get. Because the benefit's abstract. In their minds, they haven't lost their health yet. So how are you going to sell someone on something that's abstract for them? And I'm not saying you can't, you know, uh, people will change or enhance their lives for some reason. So smoking is like sugar addiction, which is like alcohol addiction. It really is. Their brain is being driven by not only just the nicotine, but it's driven by dopamine and things that give them a reward for doing it. So now you're going to try to take the reward away. And the only way that they're going to take on the pain of not having that reward in my eyes or my experience clinically here with people is for them to have some kind of pain, whether it's emotional pain, loss. You can sit there and say, we have two beautiful grandkids. It's not threatened. His, his, his existence with them isn't threatened yet. So they don't see any need to change, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, there's, <laughs> no way in, in, there's no way in hell he doesn't realize that smoking's not good for you right but it's not it's not enough yeah and so it's what's that what's that quote unquote change switch what is that thing is going to make people go into a different direction and i've been doing this stuff for 25 years with all kinds of addictions all kinds of diseases and health issues people don't change until they have some kind of pain it's bizarre (laughs) and even and and even then the pain is is I just keep coming back to a patient of mine. She's she's with walkers and she's obese and she's got diabetes. She's on eight or twelve different eight or ten different medications. Her skin is purple from blood sugar problems, and she doesn't. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand. It doesn't change. And doesn't do a thing. Yeah. And I'm not asking her to change. 
I'm asking her to make some substitutions. I'm asking her to ch to modify her habits and rituals. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to change per se, but don't you want to enhance yourself? <laughs> you would think. You would but, think. Absolutely, but people, again, they just, I don't understand. They won't change until there's, her pain is not great enough to make sacrifice for the outcome of better health. And it, maybe that's inherent to the human species. That's what we do. I don't know. Well, it's, it's kind of, it, what's coming to mind is, you know, that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can teach people like you're doing. Uh, and then some people, uh, they're just, no matter what, they're not like that patient you're describing. They're not going to do what, even when you show them, they're still not going to do what they're supposed to do. And you know they have control over that. But for those people who do want to change and make their life better and have great health, especially if they have a cancer or anything like that, a big health crisis, I mean, you've got great material. And, and, and you know, to your point, anybody with a chronic health issue, why would you want to suffer. Why would you want any symptoms? Why would you want not strength and energy and 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 vitality? It, it, it's it's kind of bizarre to me, you know, seeing people here that just aren't willing to do that. You know, I've of I've, I've an older patient. He's 74, 75, and, and I guess that's not really old, right? This guy is militant. I mean, he's super successful in his business. He's retired. He sold his business. He and his wife. They you give them some. Uh, uh, I don't want to say instruction, but you give them the right tools to like advance their health. They, I mean, they put on the fatigues. They're ready to go. They just are phenomenal. So you have your people that will take their health to a, an extreme level of just, I want to keep healthy. And some people that just don't, don't make change. So where, where are all of you, you know, are you somewhere in between or why wait for the train crash? Why wait for the, you know, <laughs> right. why wait for things to derail? Right. Again, it's it's easier to rebuild your health than to treat it when it fails. And I just keep coming back to that because I constantly say it to people. And a lot of people, it rings, it, it chimes with them, and a lot of people, it doesn't. So hopefully, we, you know, rebuild is a, uh, I wrote it so people would reduce their suffering. It really is the only guide. It's the only roadmap out there Will you create a plan unique to your health needs. And there's a lot of stories in there. There's a lot of stories of being, you know, people who have over overcome, uh, have overcame and overcome incredible odds, defied the odds. And like yourself. Have come, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, who have come out better than before. So I, I think uh, you and, and maybe you should get your husband and brother read it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I'm going to get a couple of copies. And in fact, how can people who are ready to, to listen to the information and make changes uh, for the better, or even people that have had uh, a, a major health crisis or diagnosed with cancer, and that want information that you can provide, especially since you've lived through, through such a, a horrific health crisis, how can they find you? I know you're being interviewed, I think, by Maria Shriver here pretty soon, right, this week? We it just got rescheduled, so we're waiting to hear back, so that's going to be pretty exciting. Well, yeah, absolutely. So Oh, it's just it'll it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, I think to to get the book it can be or the book can be ordered on any of the the major uh, book retailers, Bam, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Harper Wave, Harper Collins. It, it can be ordered that way. To contact me, um, I'm in Darien, Connecticut. My website is drzimbroski.com, and you can order the book right from the website as well, and just read about all about the testimonials and different people. Joan London did really well with the program. She was phenomenal, such a sweetie. 
Um, so the website's drzambroski.com forward slash rebuild. And for those who are interested in our newsletter, we send out a, a bi-monthly newsletter. Um, I teach people lots of different medical things, lots of health things, people that that uh, that you don't really hear. And again, if you, you sign up for that, then we just I, I, there's a free newsletter, a free ebook on increasing your energy that people can, can download. And that's also been pretty phenomenal. So that's there's awesome. a way to get to it. And you're and you're and you're getting ready to do a TED talk, it sounds like. Yeah, and it's to the TED Talk will be 2019. I haven't gotten the specific dates yet. And it's uh, the name of the TED Talk is if you disrespect your genes, they will turn against you. <laughs> and everybody wants skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not those jeans. Not, not those jeans. <clears throat> Although those work, but yeah. not those jeans. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, I just think you're providing such great information. I can't wait to read the book. I will buy a couple of copies for some of my family members uh, and myself as well. So thank you for coming on and sharing your incredible story. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Well, this uh, wraps up this episode of the Pitbull Patty Show. So until next time.